glad you're here. To, well, there we go. Hey, I'm glad you're here because, uh, you know, sometimes on like Memorial Day weekend, Labor Day weekend, I, like I never know what's going to happen on Sunday morning, you know, if it's going to be me in chairs or if it's going to be you. But, but this is a nice full crowd, so I'm glad to see you this morning, which meant you, were, you must have been all out of money and you couldn't go do anything this weekend. So um, might as well come to church, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. Kind of look like Dan Kidder up there on the screen. Uh, Dan, that was... That was pretty good, pretty good. Um, so I w- I've been a Braves fan my whole life. Uh, I was born in Atlanta, and as young as I can remember, all the way back to Little League days, T-ball days, we were allowed to go down once a season, and we would walk around the warning track, all the Little Leaguers in the Atlanta area. And, and so I was plugged into the Braves all the way back as early as I can remember. I remember Dale Murphy being such a big deal. He was a young, uh, you know, up-and-coming player, and that was around 76, 77. That's about my years I latched onto the Braves. We moved to, uh, to California, to Los Angeles, when I was, uh, well, right about ni- uh, 1980, 81. And at the time, the Braves and the Dodgers were in the same division. Uh, so it was kind of fun to be in enemy territory and be such an avid Braves fan. I remember getting to go to one game, Dodgers versus the Braves at Dodgers Stadium, and we sat way down the line near the foul pole. And of course, at that stage of my life, I was much shorter than I am even now. And so to be able to see the game was very tough back in the day. But I remember just being able to be there when the Braves and Dale Murphy were were in the house. And that stuck with me. Now, if you're a Braves fan at all, and you know the past of the Braves, you will remember that somewhere from about 1981 through 1990 were very difficult years to be a Braves fan. Uh, So difficult that they finished second to last or last eight of those years in that time frame. And one year they were able to squeak into the playoff and, and pretty much got swept right away when they got into it. At the end of the 80s, the Braves actually lost over 100, then 96, 97, 97. Those four seasons in a row were the roughest for a Braves fan. Now, if you're, if you're a fan of a team, you might have a history uh, of, a, of your team that went through tough times. Maybe it's right now. But I remember as, as a kid, do you know what it looked like in my bedroom during the worst years of the Braves? I had posters of Braves up. I had baseball cards in little uh, plastic sleeves that were all over the place. I mean, people that, if I said their names now, like you wouldn't even remember they played Major League Baseball, but I was so into these guys. When I would go out in the driveway and play this little game against the wall, in chalk I would write the starting lineup of those mid-80s Braves on the ground, and that's who I would play as. On my wall, and this is what I was most proud of, back with, you know, your dot matrix printers that scrolled off with the little tabs that you had to tear off, I had printed long banners that looked just like the standings in the paper when you looked. It said team, win, loss, games behind, and percentage. And I had the Braves up there, Atlanta Braves, 162 and 0. You know, they'd won every game that season. And that's what I had up on my wall during all those times. I mean, that's kind of what a fan does, right? I mean, you, you follow your team, you stick with them. And then I remember 1991. Uh, to a Braves fan, that was the most amazing year ever. Because from being a cellar dweller, not just the year before, but the decade before, and then to all of a sudden be in first place. And that was back when there was no such thing as wild cards. So you won your division or you didn't go to the playoffs, 
and somehow by the end of the season, the Braves won that division, always battling it out with the Dodgers, it seemed, and they won that division, went on, and, and they went to the World Series, lost in seven games of the World Series. That started a run as a Braves fan of 14 straight years that they went to the playoffs, 14 straight years after going 10 years of just being lousy. That's the up and down of being a fan, right? The up and down. Now, here's an interesting little point, and we'll move on from this. The Braves, in that 14-year stretch, they won the World Series one time. Once of all that time. All the times they were in the playoffs, all the times they were in the World Series, they won the World Series one time. I want to tell you what was happening that year. It was the sixth game of the World Series. It was going to happen that night. I was living in Wilmore, Kentucky, and I was studying in the library with a a pretty little girl uh, there at the seminary. And as we were studying, my plan was we were going to wrap up. The library closed early on Saturday. I was going to go back to my my dorm room, and I was going to watch that game, hoping the Braves would win the World Series that night. But this girl threw me a little curveball, a little surprise. Um, She actually said, would you like to come over and have uh, do game night with my family at my house? And... I want you to know that you may think in my head I was kind of debating between the two, what would I do? No, in a heartbeat, in an instant, I said, yes, I would like to come over to your house. And uh, I did that. The Braves won the World Series that night, the only time they've ever won it, one to nothing on a Dave Justice home run. And uh, I've never watched the game since. I've never seen a replay of the game. But that night I went over to Cherie's house for the first time, interacted with her family, that was 20 years ago. We've been married for 19 years. So men, if you ever are debating between her house for family night or your game, choose her house, okay? Choose her house. That's, that's the way to go. Just think of what being a fan would have got me in trouble with. We're going to talk through this for the next few minutes. Um, I want to do this. So I want to say just holler one, two, three, and I would like to hear your favorite team that you follow, all right? Baseball, football, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, Just holler out on the count of three. Does that make sense? Is that simple enough? All right. Is three long enough to come up with one if you don't have one, all right? If you don't like teams, just just fake it. Just follow along, all right? One, two, three. That was a delay just so we could get yours in, Tom. All right? All right. That, that was pretty good. None of that actually made any sense what you just said to me. It just sounded like a garbled mess. But that proves the point. We're all different fans of something, some team. We all like to follow some team, and we latch ourselves onto this. Now, the word fan is actually comes from the word you, you might think it comes from. It comes from the word fanatic, fanatic. In fact, you might call yourself a fan, but you would never want to call yourself a fanatic per se, right? Or you would be slow to call yourself a fanatic. You're very quick to call yourself a fan. So for the sake of what we want to talk through this morning, let's just go with the word fan as it's kind of culturally acceptable to us. A fan. Someone who likes a team. You, You plug into the team. You keep an eye on what's going on with that team. You might even buy jerseys and wear jerseys around. You might even get on the sidewalk and you might have a conversation with somebody about your team, especially when they come around and say how your team is worse than their team. And then, you know, the spirited conversations go. Now, I grew, I I went to seminary in Kentucky, so the Kentucky-Louisville rivalry in anything is pretty big. When I came here, though, and got to see, you know, another rivalry in the UNC and the Duke rivalry come football, or excuse me, basketball season, um, 
You might get in those conversations. It might be kind of just deep within you. But we all seem to latch on to something. If it's not a team, it might be a single athlete, a golfer or a car driver, something like that. We seem to latch on and we're attached. If it's not sports at all, maybe for you, like it's, it's an actor, somebody you just latch on to, and if him or her are in that movie, that's what you plug into. And if their face happens to appear on the People magazine when you're checking out, like that's the one People magazine you want to buy because you are a fan. And we all have somebody that fits into this category. And so for the sake of this morning, let's just talk about fan from that, from that cultural point of view, that type of fandom. And so I want to just walk through this outline with you, and I want to talk with you how Jesus kind of dealt with this same type of thing. He dealt with people who were interested in him. They were excited about him. They were, uh, they kind of said, hey, Jesus, that's my guy. That's the guy, you know, I check out and I stay around with. And then he had a whole nother level of people that were followers. Now, sometimes it's hard to even say fan today without using the word follower or following because when we think about Facebook and Instagram and those type of things, what do we say? I follow is what we use to describe it. But in Jesus' time, this word follower, actually in the Bible, is the same word for this word disciple. It's the same type of word. Not apostle, that's a, whole, that's a different word, but this to follower is actually the same word for disciple. And this disciple, this is somebody I'm this somebody who's deeply plugged in. We're going to talk about that and and what that means in just a moment. So let's walk through the first part of this. What really is a fan in this cultural term that we use today? A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. Does that describe you? Enthusiastic admirer. In fact, um, if you didn't get your sermon notes, if you got in here and you're kind of like, I can tell some of you are looking to what to write down, just slip up your hand and Richard will run you one right now so that you can follow along with these few blanks that we're filling in uh, this morning. So, very good. So, enthusiastic admirer, does that describe you? All right, Tom and Melissa down here in the second row, that describes them this morning in their gear. I can tell you're an enthusiastic Clemson follower. And there's a lot of those Clemson followers around these parts because I went to the Wake Forest Clemson game last year, and Wake Forest is black and gold. But that crowd was purple and orange when I was there. So a lot of enthusiastic admirers uh, for the Tigers down there. Jesus dealt with this, though. There's a story in John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, John chapter 6, your, your notes will just highlight a couple verses here. And I want to highlight uh, a couple more. But in John chapter 6, there's this interesting little story where Jesus starts to describe himself as the bread of life. In fact, it's a, it's a phrase we use sometimes in the church, and we just use it like it's normal, like everybody out there uses bread of life to describe things. But Jesus is introducing this really kind of for the first time, and it's a confusing concept to his people. So in the very beginning of, uh, of, of this chapter, it says, Jesus crossed uh, to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had done and performed on the sick. And so what we find here is that Jesus has attracted a huge crowd. Why? Because he's been healing people. Now, that would do it, right? Um, If this morning uh, one of you came up here and I just, like, completely healed you, um, that attracts a bit of a following. And so Jesus had that. He had these people who wanted to be there. Some wanted to be healed. Some just wanted to see him do these things. And then we find at the beginning of of chapter 6 here, this first story, you know what it is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. If you're 5,000 people, 
All right? And they usually counted men, so 5,000 people plus women and children. It's a huge, huge crowd. And what you find out is that Jesus performs this amazing miracle where he takes just this basket loaf of fish and, and bread and he multiplies it so everyone in the crowd can eat. That would be like if I took our communion stuff that you, we just served this morning, the little bit of bread. I mean, you saw it. It was four plates of little pieces of bread. And just like we multiplied that to where it was like a big potluck, a Wendover potluck feast that we had this morning where we had to sh- send leftovers home, which by the way, I had to take the leftovers home to my house. And that is like terrible for me because I enjoyed them very much. But that would be like that. Jesus takes this little basket and he multiplies it for these thousands and thousands of people who all ate and then he sent leftovers. That, that's what happened. So this crowd is already following. They're already with Jesus because of his miracles and now they get to sit there and they get to be part of this miracle where they actually get to eat because of Jesus's miracle. What does that do to the attraction to Jesus? I mean, this is the height of his popularity here. This is the height. If you're going around and you're teaching to the commoners out there and you're teaching in a way that the religious leaders in the temple never teach, and then you're performing miracles on them, and then you're like popping up, you know, food out of midair and you're feeding them, what kind of following, what kind of attraction does that cause? That's where Jesus is at here. And then he starts in to this teaching about being the bread of life here. Let me, let me just start it up here in chapter uh, 6, verse 26. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. So Jesus started talking to him and he said, look, all you guys that are following me, you want to be with me because I just fed you. I did something amazing, but not because you understand what is behind the miracle itself. He's starting to get to the theology of it. He's starting to get to the power of it, the source of these miracles and this feeding here. But don't, you, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your in- energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For, for God the Father has given me his seal of approval. Now, it's one thing for a religious leader to attract a big following and do miracles. It wasn't completely uncommon. Jesus isn't the only one that's credited with miracles here. But now Jesus, in his conversation, is, look, it's not about the food and the miracles. It's about the power and the source. And guess what? God, the power and the source, he's given approval to me. He's starting to share with them that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the connection with God that's very different than any other rabbi that they've encountered. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? So you can see as he's starting to teach it already, they, they don't quite get it. He says, look, the only work you need to be concerned with is believing in the one who sent me. And they said, well, that's great, perfect. Why don't you do another miracle to kind of prove what you're talking about right now is really true? He just, if you could just do another sign, another miracle, then 
then we'll, we'll understand and we'll, we'll follow this, this teaching you're talking about here. So you can see here that they're wanting something out of Jesus before that they will believe on this teaching. In your blank here, I've, I've given you a fan as a consumer. Uh, this, is, this is like a danger zone in the fan world, is that we're looking to consume, consume. It's why at every park in America, baseball, football, whatever the sport, if your team is winning, the stands are full. If your team is not winning, it's pretty tough. If you went out to see your local grasshoppers this season, Greensboro grasshoppers, um, you might not know this, but they were the worst team in the South Atlantic League this year. Um, worst, worst season in the South Atlantic League for a number of seasons in a row. They were about 10 games behind the second to last place team. It was a rough, rough season for our local Greensboro grasshoppers. Um, not as many people in the stands to see the grasshoppers this year. Now, my Braves, uh, we equally are taking it on the chin this year. We are, are one game, as I like to call it, we're only one game away from being the number one draft pick uh, for next year's baseball draft. So we're about to win something. Um, so it's a pretty rough year, pretty rough year. Um, if, you, if you look in the, fa- in the stands at Turner Field on any telecast now, you're not going to see too many people uh, in those stands. It's how it goes. Why? Because as fans, we're consumers, we're consumers. What can you do for me? What are you offering for me? And the more you offer, the more you give, the more I will be there. And so we're consumers. Jesus is dealing with, with some people here that it's not that they didn't love Jesus. It's not that they didn't think he was something totally different and, and worthy of, of kind of, of falling around to see what he was going to do next. It was when Jesus kind of changed to say, hey, there is a heart of the issue that you're missing if you just look to miracles. This connection with God, believing in God, following and trusting in Him, if you miss that and you just see the miracle and the power or you just hear the teaching, then you're going to miss the core of what we're really talking about here. And they struggled with that. Some of them just simply struggled understanding what He was talking about. Others understood and realized this is, this is really not. This is getting a little weird for me now. And they started to drop off. In fact, we find in, in verse 41 and 42 of this, at this, this, this teaching, at this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? It, you see, when Jesus started to talk about his connection with God the Father, for many of them, it just it started to get a little weird for them. This is odd. Isn't he not like, isn't he this guy we, we grew up and we knew who he was? We knew his parents. When we know he was born and stuff like that. How could he have any more special connection with God? How is, is there any anointing? Certainly, how is he able to call himself the bread of life come down for us? How is this coming from his lips? This is getting a little too much for us. And so they were starting to struggle, struggle and grumble already at this. I think that the church world experiences this. As Christians, we experience this often. When everything kind of makes sense to us and, and we're getting out of something what we want to get out of it, then it's easy to stay plugged into the church. It's easy to stay plugged into God. It's easy to keep tracking with him. 
But when something doesn't quite connect with us, God calls us to something that sounds, uh, sounds different to us or hard to us. That's when we, we, we start to get off track. Or if we look at the church and say, well, they're just not meeting, you finish the blank, just not meeting my needs. This is, this is just not quite working anymore. Or, you know, it could be as simple as, I just don't know if I like the music anymore. The music has changed so much. I mean, it just, it doesn't quite sound like the same. They've got different singers up there than five years ago. And, you know, I don't have as many hymns in there or, you know, it just, it just doesn't sound the same. And we kind of decide to slide on and find a church where music appeals to us a little better. It's so easy if we're not careful as Christians or in the church world to sink into this consumer mindset where in a way what we're saying is, hey, um, show me something and then I'll plug in. And then you plug in for a while and like this story that we just read, okay, now show me something more or continue and then, you know, I'll, I'll plug in even further if you show me something a little bit more. And so we can develop a consumer mindset. In fact, present day, I believe the biggest struggle in the church, especially the contemporary church, is the consumer mindset. It is the thought that as a church, we say, what do I get out of it? What's in it for me? Instead of seeing the church as a vessel, an avenue for me to serve God alongside of other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the church. It was there from the beginning. Jesus spoke it to Peter that way. And yet, it's so easy for us to get into this consumer mindset. Second thing is a fan want options, right? I mean, you want options as a fan. When you're a fan of something, guess what? They win and do good, I'm in. They lose and do bad, I'm out. All right? Maybe I'll I'll pick it up on TV, follow live stats, something like that. I'll, I'll keep the Twitter feed going for my team, but... But if, they, if they're winning, you know, I'm in. I've, I've got to go to one postseason baseball playoff. In fact, just about every year when the playoffs come around, especially when the Braves were in it, and people would kind of like post or they would tell me about, you know, them getting to go to the game, you know. I mean, those are the people like I wanted to go slash their tires because there was like, as a passionate of a fan as I was, I never could get myself to a game. There was always something, price or timing or something like that. I remember one night, the... Uh, being such a, a, a big baseball fan, um, the Arizona Diamondbacks were in the playoffs. They actually went on to win the World Series that year, but they were in the playoffs, the first round of playoffs. We had Bible study at youth on Sunday night where we did a little singing and a Bible study. And uh, I'm sitting there that night and I'm like, man, we got like half the crowd here tonight. There's a lot of people that want to sit in front of their TV or, or stuff, but the game doesn't even start till like right after Bible study. Kind of find out there was like these two families that got big blocks of tickets, and, and several of them went to the game, and I'm like, those dirty rats, you know, here's lifelong baseball fan, and, you know, and I'm watching rabbit ears, um, trying to see this game. Um, yeah, a fan want options. I mean, you want to have options. I got to go to one playoff game, and guess what? I paid for it. Um, it wasn't cheap. I paid. I sat in the upper deck with Cherie way down the line when the uh, Diamondbacks were playing the Braves, way down. I mean, I know Greg Maddox was on the mound, but I mean, I couldn't prove it to you. Uh, so, and that's where we sat that night and watched, watched the Braves unfortunately lose to Randy Johnson uh, that night. Only playoff game. I was willing to pay for it. I mean, we went several hours early to get in line so that we could get into a game I already had an assigned seat, but I still wanted to, some, I wanted to be in the ballpark. You got options, right? 
when your team's winning, a fan has options. When you're committed, when you come to Jesus Christ and you say, look, I'm in, Jesus. No matter what, I'm in. Guess what goes away? Options. Options. When Shri and I got married, we made a commitment to one another. We said, we will never joke about divorce. We'll never, like, you know, just even funny little things you might say. Well, I guess I'm just going to leave you for someone newer. Kind of, like, we just say we're never going to even joke about that kind of thing. It would be solidified that it is a non-negotiable. It is not an option. When you don't have, when you're plugged and you're committed 100%, guess what? You start losing options. I think so often we like to stay on the fan level because it allows us to have options. We can step out when we're ready to step out. We can move on when we're ready to move on. We can stay committed and plugged in here or we cannot be committed and plugged in here. That's okay. We have options uh, as just a fan. We find here Jesus deals with this and many of his disciples left. John chapter 6 verse 67, 68. From this time on, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Not the 12 apostles, don't get this confused. Many of the, the disciples, people that were following him up till now, they turned away. It got too tough. I mean, Jesus is starting to talk about this relationship he has with God, and then this relationship he wants his followers to have with God. It got to be too much for them. He turns to his disciples, he says, are you going to leave me too? Do, and he asked the 12, and, and it was Peter who spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, this first group said, look, we got options. We can go somewhere else. There's other rabbis that teach. There's other places that, that we can go. And he turns to his disciples and he said, well, are you headed out too? And guess what Peter says? We got no options. Where would we go? We got nowhere to go. You are an option. We're that plugged in and we're that committed. This is what being a fan allows us. Options. Options. You want to move on? Move on. If it gets a little too hard, okay. You know, just, just move on out. Move on out. Somebody else will step in and, and serve or, or plug in in your area if it gets too tough for you. You can have options. But the followers, the disciples, guess what they said? We got no options. We got no options. You are the one we are committed to. It is God we want to plug in through you, Jesus. And so we don't have options. They were followers. And if you flip your page over, what a follower is, is a loyal imitator. A loyal imitator. Somebody who says, look, I want to be just like you. And I'm going to commit to learning and growing and how to be like you. If you flip over in Luke chapter 9, we get a, a totally uh, different story here. Chapter 9 in verse uh, 23, we find Jesus actually... Uh, he predicts his, his death in this passage is what he actually does and speaks this to, uh, to his followers and to the people. He says to the crowd, uh, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Now, we've heard this over and over and over, right? As believers, you've read this passage, you've heard it preached. This is weird teaching. I mean, this is very odd when Jesus comes to his people and says, look, okay, you want to be my follower, um, you got to turn in your selfish ways. That, that we can understand, right? We can't be selfish. Okay. And then you got to take up your cross and you got to follow me. Um, they would only know cross as, as a means of, of execution, as a means of pain, as struggle there. 
and you need to take it up. Now, they would have understood that to take up a cross, when somebody was crucified, they carried their cross. And so this burden, this, this weight to bear, would, they would have understood where Jesus was coming from. And then he says, um, where it gets weird, if you want to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Saying, look, when you plug in, you plug in full tilt, 100%. I used to think when I would watch the Billy Graham Crusades on TV and, and uh, I would see just thousands and thousands and thousands of people flood out of stands and come down to say yes to Jesus. And then I attended a Luis Palau crusade one time and just thousands of people flooding out and coming down and saying yes. And I remember going to my youth camps and then was a counselor at youth camps and and it seemed like everyone eventually was out of their chairs down at the altar uh, at these youth camps. And you start playing all those scenarios in your head and you're like, man, everyone comes and becomes a Christian at some point, right? Yet the passage tells us narrow is the road narrows the road. Because Jesus, as he's speaking right here, as he's talking in the previous passage, he knows it's not about just uh, like getting excited one time or or saying, yeah, and it grabbing us and just saying yes in the moment. It is about plugging in and being a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. And then when you start thinking about it that way and you say, wow, lifelong follower, people who uh, like they are just plugged in and they are faithful, loyal imitators of Jesus Christ, that road starts to look a lot narrower. Looks a lot narrower than all the people coming forward and and saying yes as an altar. And so what Jesus is getting at, that to be that faithful follower, we're a loyal imitator, to look just like him. And that we're willing to give up this life that we know currently, the life I currently live, and say, I will now model my life after what it is Jesus has to offer. A follower is committed. I was trying to think of a, a metaphor to really describe committed, and, and I thought, I don't have one, God. What, where, what would you really show us? We're talking about committed here. And it was clear as day. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you understand the theology of that? That, that Jesus came and he so passionately loved the church. He loved his people so much that he was willing to give up his life for the sake of his church. Knowing that you would ha- not have salvation had it not been for Jesus giving up his life. You would not experience life unless Jesus Christ gave up his life. He was so passionate about you, about his church. He was so passionate about that that he was willing to give up his life and follow in obedience to what God told him to do. And in the same way, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives that way. Love your wives. To look at your spouse and be so passionate and so committed to your spouse. I was listening this week to sports radio. I enjoy listening to an afternoon show. And one of the guests they had on, and they were saying it in a joking way, but it still came out verbal, loud and clear. He said, Vegas, I go out to Vegas to get, rid of, get away from my wife and not have to hear her nagging. I mean, that, that's, that's what was said. Again, in a joking fashion, I want to display it like it was said. Love your wives the way Christ loved the church. 
I mean, th- that's what we're talking about here. That would be commitment. If we were to go rubber meets the road in our Christianity, men out there, that's what we would look at. And we would say, Christ so passionately loved the church that I sit in the church today and I receive from the church today and I receive salvation from, from Jesus Christ. That's the way I turn to my spouse and I love her. That's the way I'm committed to her. That's the way I take care of her. That's the way I offer her what she needs uh, in, in, in my, just my daily life when I turn to her. What do you need today, hon? That's commitment. Followers of Jesus Christ are committed and guess what? I mean, if we carry out this metaphor, marriage gets pretty tough at some points. Uh, it gets hard. There are some times I look at my marriage uh, of 19 years, and I, and I would say to you, I think it's a pretty good marriage. There's some times where I would rather not be bothered with things. I just like to do my thing. Sheree, do your thing. We'll come back together. Everything will be all right. You know, marriage is tough. And you just, you just keep, you keep going at it. Why? Because we're committed. We're committed And Jesus teaches me a model of how to do it. And in the end, the blessing is always, always better than than the counter. Being a committed follower, committed, it gets tough. In the church world, it gets tough sometimes. Jesus calls us to things sometimes, and it is tough. If you're battling an addiction and you've made a commitment before Jesus Christ, I'm going to get off that addiction, guess what? It's going to be tough. Listen to a great sermon on the way driving down to the lake, which we've had a, a, a nice getaway. We came out to, to have service today, and we're going back, and um, we haven't done any technology, so if you've been sending me texts or calls, um, it's not that I haven't been ignoring them. I just have been ignoring the whole phone. So, uh, but we listened to this message where the pastor just so well said, sometimes God is saying to you, you step out and go the direction he, you know he wants you to go, And in the path, guess what? The power will come. It's tough. But you step out and you go because you're committed. And then if you'll not see the power of God join you on the path and help you to overcome whatever it is he's already called you to be committed to. Why? Because a follower is a loyal imitator. You're committed to following no matter what. No matter what. A follower is connected as well. You're plugged in. Connected. Connected. Saying, I, I'm, I'm going to engulf my life with this. I'm going to connect in accountability with some other people that can keep me strong, that, that know of me, that can speak into my life. I'm going to plug into you know, a, a small group as well that I can share and, and be shared with as well. I'm going to get plugged into daily devotions to a level that every day that I'm connected with God and I'm receiving from Him and I'm going before Him because there's a power that's there that I would not receive Otherwise, next Sunday morning is this, this great opportunity to display being a follower. We're doing baptism. And I want to explain something for just a moment because sometimes it sounds a little confusing, I know. I'll always say to you, if you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're like, well, how would you be baptized otherwise, right? Well, we know in many faiths and many traditions, there is a tradition of actually baptizing, or it's called baptizing an infant, a baby, in our tradition, we call that a christening. That's a commitment of the parents to bring you up in a Christian home. And whether that's done with, without water or with water is really irrelevant to us. It's a, commitment to, it's a commitment to the parents, for the parents, and for the church body to raise this kid in a Christian home. But there's a moment in your life when you are old enough to say yes to Jesus Christ yourself, where you 
when you plant your feet and say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you say yes, that might be 12 years old, 17, I was 16 when it happened. You might be 30, or one time we actually baptized a guy that was about 75 years old. Uh, we baptized at, at our warehouse facility. Well, it doesn't matter when it is. If you became a committed follower of Jesus Christ and said yes, at that age were you able to say yes, then baptism follows. Because baptism is a public confession to the whole body of Christ. I'm committed. I'm a follower. You can hold me accountable and I'll do it for you. That's what baptism does for us. And so next week we celebrate baptism. We have a few that are signed up already to do that. But if if that explanation for you like hits home and you're like, yeah, I'm a, I've made a commitment as a believer and I was baptized, you know, when I was real little at two years old or one years old or as an infant that I don't remember, but I've never been baptized as a believer after I made my commitment, we want to baptize you next week. And we'd simply, as Anson said earlier, take the card, just write baptism or check the box in the back and we'll connect with you right away and it'll be a joyous incredible event next week, I promise. The takeaway uh, is just simply a question for you to take home and ponder, put it into your devotions, talk it over with your family. Is Jesus one of many or is he your one and only? One of many or is he your one and only? See, I think as a fan, we can follow lots of teams. I love the Braves. I'm a big Kentucky basketball fan. I kind of get plugged into a, a few things here or there. Jeff's working on me with auto racing as well. Um, but But when we're a follower, it's hard to be like plugged in, passionately giving our life away to more than one thing. It's usually one thing. So is Jesus one of many or is he your one and only? I'm going to pray for you in this area and I want to lift lift you up. and, And I would guess this morning that for some of you that the need to kind of take this this sermon notes away and read through the passages. It's a lengthy passage. It's, it's 70 verses. I just read a few of them. Some of you, that's what you need to do in your devotion time this week and let God speak to you uh, as well. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, that we, we can have a great time as fans with all kinds of sports teams and actors and, and whatnot uh, in our life, but that you've said, I'm really not into fans. Uh, that your goal is not fans. In fact, it was times at the height of your popularity that you said things like in this passage and people left you. Many in groves, they left. Not something somebody usually does at the height of their popularity. They're usually trying to come up with the business plan to increase their popularity. But it's because, Lord, you're not interested in fans. You're interested in followers, disciples, people who are sold out, committed to you. And Lord, though the journey is, is sometimes long in, in the arrival of that, this morning, Lord, the prayer for each of us is that we would take one step forward, one step towards whatever you've already called us to. And then, Lord, we'll see you meet us and empower us, transform us. Father, I want to pray just for the person that uh, uh, maybe is sitting here and, and there was a couple things we hit on that I think are important and that is a, the person that's addicted this morning to something. Lord, it could be a person sitting here that's addicted to pornography, person addicted to a drug. Lord, uh, fill in the blank, anything else. 
And I'm going to pray this morning, Lord, that that might be the obstacle, it might be the wall that has been there that is preventing this person from from being able to really surrender and commit because they feel worthless all the time because of this addiction. Father, this morning I just pray the power of the Holy Spirit on them. They could, could indeed drop this, could put it aside, and they could walk with you in faith and trust that you're going to empower them on the way. They just need to start walking and go in that direction. Whatever they need to do to eliminate that, that addiction in their life, they would do it. Because they said, I'm going to be a loyal imitator of Jesus Christ, and this addiction has no place in my walk with Jesus. And then, Lord, though this wasn't a sermon on marriage this morning, I just want to just take a quick moment to pray for any of those, Lord, this morning. Maybe any husband that needs to be empowered with loving their spouse the way you love the church. And that maybe there's guys in here that this morning, uh, we just needed to hear that. That that's what we're called to do. And that we're given a model through our Lord and Savior on how to do it. But to look at our spouse and say, that is the person that I'm passionate about and I need to express and show love and affection every single day. And then, Lord, for the person that just identifies and says, I've been a fan. When it gets hard, I don't really like it. When Tom challenges us sometimes up front, I don't really like that. When the music changes and it's a song I don't really go for, I don't really like that. And it's just so easy for them to be either consumer or to look for their options. This morning, I pray, Father, for the sake of your kingdom, that you, that that person would say, I'm ready to be a follower, ready to step up. I'm ready to be a loyal imitator of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this in your son's name, trusting that you have everything we need to offer. We pray in your son's name. Amen. If there's anything uh, related to this or going on in your life that you want to communicate with us, could you please use that card just right in there? Prayer requests. We pray every Tuesday morning for all those type of things. We'd love to pray for you and uh, and just connect with you about that. Would be would be wonderful. So, well, we're gonna finish off. Ta- we're gonna take our tithes and offerings. Our ushers will come through and.